Hello, hello. Test, test. Okay, we'll go ahead and get started here. Today we're going to finish off session 36 and then move on to session 37. And we'll just see how far we get. Does everybody have session 37? Does anybody need one? Thank you, Ken. All right, if you remember last week, Paul was on his way to Jerusalem. It's the tail end of his missionary journey. He's going there for the Feast of Pentecost and also to give a report to the church that's in Jerusalem about how his missionary journey has gone. And last week we talked about what happened when he's traveling through these different Christian communities and what is the problem when he encounters these Christians and he's going to Jerusalem. What are they telling Paul? Don't go. But why? He'll be in trouble. He'll be imprisoned. He might be killed. Things will be bad for him if he continues on his way to Jerusalem. But what does he decide to do, despite all of this that he's being told? He's going to go. And last week we talked about, is St. Paul going against the Holy Spirit when he decides to go to Jerusalem, despite the fact that it's been foretold that bad things will happen to him? Is he going against the Holy Spirit? No, he's not. So I think we'll pick up here on the back of sheet 36 under number 3, and we'll start reading Acts 21, verse 17. We can go ahead and start over here. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the brothers were perfect. After greeting them, we related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. <coughs> and when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. My turn? Did you want to go all the way to 26? Sure, let's go through 26. Okay. What shall we Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves with them and pay their expenses. 
so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have told, been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Okay. So here in verse 17, Paul finally does arrive in Jerusalem. How is he received? Gladly. They're glad to see him. And Paul continues on to give a report to James. Now, who is this James fellow? Yes, and what role does he have in the church of Jerusalem? He's the leader. He's the bishop. So St. Paul travels to Jerusalem. He meets up with James and the other elders and pastors of Jerusalem. And he gives them a full report of everything that he's been doing on his third missionary journey. How did they respond? They glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother... How many thousands are among the Jews of those who have believed? So Paul's missionary journey was a success. Uh, and we see this is not unique to, his, to the end of his missionary journeys. After each one, he returns to Jerusalem and gives a full report. Now why is that important? I think we've talked about it in previous weeks. Why does Paul continue to go back to Jerusalem? Any ideas? That's where the church is headquartered. That's right. That's where it's headquartered. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples to go to Jerusalem and from there spread the gospel to all corners of the earth. So when Paul continues to return to, Jer to Jerusalem, he's showing that it's not just the church of Paul, and the church of Paul does whatever the church of Paul wants to do. No, he's part of the universal church, the church that follows Jesus Christ and his command. All right, uh, starting in verse 20. There's a good report. St. Paul's missionary journey has been successful. But what's the problem that he runs that is uh, in Jerusalem now? What's the rumor going around? That he's teaching them not to follow the laws. That, that Paul is teaching uh, to, to not follow the law of Moses. Uh, any specific Things? Circumcision. circumcision. And that's a big one um, in the New Testament. And there was a lot of conflict and strife over this issue of circumcision. 
So are these rumors true that St. Paul is going around and telling the Jews, hey, don't follow the law of Moses anymore and don't get circumcised? No, they're not true. They're not true. Let's go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 2. And we can start reading at verse 17, wherever we left off. Romans chapter 2, verse 17, and we can go to the end of the chapter. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, and you then teach others, do you not teach yourself? So here in Romans, St. Paul is taking up this issue of circumcision, and the Jews who become Christians often like to insist that you have to keep following the law. Maybe not every part of it, but definitely circumcision. And if you're not circumcised, well, you can't be a Christian. And that's what they're telling the Gentiles who convert to Christianity. St. Paul corrects them and says that circumcision is not necessary for Christians in the physical sense. But there's the circumcision of the heart, which is um, Christ came to fulfill the law, and these ceremonial Jewish laws and instructions, such as circumcision and dietary restrictions and all that, have been fulfilled in Christ. And you can't 
The gospel is not a new law that you have to obey. The gospel is Christ's fulfillment of the law for you. So, for, Christi- for Gentiles to convert to Christianity is not the same. They're not just grafted in to Judaism as its own thing. They're all Christians now. Um, circumcision is no longer necessary. The dietary restrictions are no longer necessary. If the Jews want to continue with those practices, Paul is not saying, hey, you have to stop this. He's saying, I need you to understand that circumcision, the physical act of it, is not really what makes you a Christian. Jesus is who makes you a Christian. And let's also read Galatians 5, 1 to 16. Galatians is another one of those books where St. Paul takes up this issue of circumcision uh, a whole lot. Are we back at the beginning? Okay. Okay. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. I call, thank you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So here again, we see that the issue that Paul is dealing with 
is these Jews that convert to Christianity and then encounter Gentiles say that, okay, yes, Jesus is Lord and Jesus forgives your sins and faith in Jesus is what saves you and also circumcision. And Paul's argument against that is if you're going to hold anything else up to what Jesus has done for you and faith in Jesus, when you say faith plus works are what save you, then you can't just rely on circumcision. You have to go the whole way. You have to follow the whole law of Moses perfectly. And you can't do that because we're all sinful and we all fall short of the glory of God, which is why Jesus came into the flesh for us. So here in Acts, Paul is running into these rumors that he teaches that Jews should no longer be circumcised and that the Jews should no longer follow the laws of Moses. And this is creating turmoil in the city of Jerusalem. And the elders and the bishop and the brothers in Jerusalem are telling Paul this back in the book of Acts. And what, what is the plan then for St. Paul? What is he supposed to do in order to combat these rumors? He's supposed to take a vow along with some other men who have taken the vow and shave that's right so the plan is for St. Paul to continue as he would normally because he's a good Jew but a Christian now as well um, to actually follow the law of Moses when he gets to Jerusalem and he's there for a feast there are certain ritual uh, purification things that he has to do in order to be purified, in order to participate in, in the events going on in Jerusalem. So that's the plan. He and these four other guys who have taken a similar vow. And we remember when there was that odd passage about St. Paul getting a haircut. Well, that's that same similar sort of vow, part of some sort of purification ritual. So when St. Paul follows on with this plan and he uh, observes the law, let's see, we, we ended at 26. Um, the, the bishop there, uh, James, comes up with this plan and makes some sort of determination for the Gentiles who have believed. So in the midst of this plan to combat these rumors going on, they're also doing some church business there. And what, what did the Christians in Jerusalem decide as for the Gentiles? They sent a letter, and what was the judgment in that letter? 
Right. What verse are you in? Verse 25, and yeah, just verse 25. Okay. So the church there knows that St. Paul hasn't been condemning circumcision for the Jews or teaching the Jews to no longer follow the law of Moses. But they come up with a plan for him to do a ritual purification and they need to make some sort of determination as to what the actual ruling is on these issues of dietary restrictions and circumcision. And what the church in Jerusalem decided is that the Gentiles throughout the world should refrain from eating food that has been sacrificed to idols. And sort of tied into that is this abstain from blood, which is oft, which would have been what uh, the sort of sacrifices would have been, blood sacrifices. Stay away from that sort of paganism and also the strangulation and sexual immorality. And these are all the religion of the world that he's encountering. In this pagan world, there's lots of sacrifices to idols with food, ritualistic sacrifices to false gods involving strangulation and letting out of blood, and a lot of sexual immorality with uh, temple prostitutes. So. Christians who convert, Gentiles who convert to Christianity in these lands need to refrain from those things. They're Christians now. Um, St. Paul says, you know, if you know that this meat has been sacrificed to an idol or a false god, don't eat that meat. But if you don't know and you don't ask and you know that it wouldn't cause offense to a brother for you to partake of that meat, then you can Go ahead. But the way that the, the ancient world worked is often in your town, all of the meat would be kind of in one central marketplace and all of it would have been sacrificed to idols. It's hard to be a Christian in a pagan world. You do have these sorts of conflicts. So that was the determination that the Christians in Jerusalem made. You don't have to get circumcised to be a Christian. Christianity is not faith plus circumcision. The work is Christ's. There's no evidence that the, the Jews at that time were you know, slaughtering their own animals for and taking, taking some of the meat to the marketplace? Uh, the Jews would have done their own thing entirely. They would not have had any participation in that, which is also what you know, Paul teaches the Gentiles who convert. You can't really, you can't follow the same sort of pagan religion or religious rituals that you once did. Even if it was commonplace, even if it's difficult, you are called to follow Christ now. Okay, let's go ahead and read. Well, let's, okay, let's finish up this sheet here. This ritualistic purification, which is the plan. Sure. Um, nowadays, you can look 
has almost any processed food item, and we'll see whether it has the, the kosher symbol on it. And so you can, that means it was inspected by the rabbi in charge, and that, uh, that it's therefore okay for you to eat as a Jew. There was nothing like that happening then in these days because the marketplace was wide open to any kind of baking practice. That's correct. And often, whatever food, specifically meat, you found in a marketplace in one of these pagan cities, um, it would have been sacrificed to an idol or a false god or dedicated in some way to the temple of the false god, etc. But Jews uh, were often insulated against that and had their own practices and their own synagogue, their own places of commerce and in that way separated themselves out. But yes, today, if you do look a lot frequently on processed foods, most any food really in the grocery store, you can look and you can see a circle with a K or a U or some other little symbol that indicates that that food is kosher. But don't think that that food has been sacrificed to a false god in the same way that St. Paul is talking about here. It just means that a rabbi has said some sort of blessing over it, and it's now kosher and ceremonially clean for Jews to consume. They do. They have to um, leave it out and then they wash the meat so there's no blood. Yes, they follow those same dietary restrictions of the law of Moses and they slit the throat, drain out all the blood. They have a whole process. So when I was in college, my, one of my summer jobs was working for the USDA and I would uh, inspect meat at the end of the process, just before it went to the coolers. And this one plant they had me work at was owned by a Jewish family. And the rabbi, you could see the kill thing, okay? And they did take the, the steer or whatever and pull it up in the air alive and slit its throat alive. Yes. And then once all once the rabbi is whatever he was saying, I couldn't hear him or whatever, but he gave permission to the guy next to him to then finish it off by knocking him in the head. All the other packing houses I worked at, you know, they uh, they were knocked out before. They, they they have a they have a way of doing it. Um, and a funny story that I was told in seminary by one of my professors. Oftentimes, uh, they can be a little relaxed with these kosher laws. Um, one of my seminary professors actually went on a road trip with his trucker buddy. They had a load of meat, were hauling it to a city. But the truck broke down, and apparently the blessing that they had received where they started from the, priest, uh, from the, uh, the Jewish priest or rabbi there was only good for 24 hours. 
So you have this window that you need to get this meat to, the, to where you're going really quick. Well, the truck broke down and the blessing expired. So what do you do? You have a truckload of just useless meat now. And that would be really bad for his buddy who was the truck driver. So, a lot of barbecue invited the whole town. So what they did was they, they got on the, on the phone, just a regular pay phone, and the guy, I don't know, looked up in the yellow pages for the nearest rabbi and said, Rabbi, we have this problem. Can you come here and re-bless this truckload of meat and make it kosher again so I don't get fired? Well, it's a little out of my way. I tell you what, you write me the check, hold the receiver up to the back of the truck, open the door, I'll say the blessing, and it'll be good. That's what they did. <laughs> they backed the truck up to the payphone, held up the receiver, the rabbi said the blessing, they sent him a check, it was expensive, but they delivered the, the whole truckload of meat and and that was that. So we see there's a little variation in how closely they can follow the actual law of Moses. Okay, but back on topic, back on topic. The purification process that St. Paul was going to go through with these four other men uh, would have involved a haircut and also uh, a ritualistic bathing in uh, what's called a mikvah. And you can see a picture of that on the top of session 37, on the next sheet. So St. Paul would have gone into a little ritualistic cleansing sort of bath like that, washed himself, come back out. And what this would signal to the Jews there who are upset because they've heard that he's teaching against the law of Moses and against circumcision, it will show them that no, actually, St. Paul is still following the law of Moses and that these rumors are false. And hopefully that would quiet everything down and he wouldn't get into trouble. Okay, I think we're ready to move on then to session 37. And let's go ahead and read Acts 21, 26 to 36. I don't remember where we left off. Leonard, go ahead. Start, start with 26. Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. And the seven days were almost completed. The Jews from Asia, in the temples, stirred up a whole crowd and laid hands on them. Crying out, men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. 
they had previously seen yeah, <laughs> the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. Now the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the Thor that Jerusalem was in confusion. Okay, so despite his best efforts to avoid any sort of conflict, we do see that St. Paul gets into a little bit of trouble here. So he goes through the ritualistic purification. The process takes seven days. And then he goes to the temple. Now, when he gets to the temple, he encounters some Jews that recognize him. What do they cry out? What do they yell? What's their accusation? Right. That he's preaching against the law of Moses. And, and he's brought in some Greeks into the temple. Uh, what else is he teaching against? It says there in verse 28, the people and the law of Moses and this place. What place would that have been? The temple. The temple itself. So we have to ask ourselves, who are these Jews that he has encountered in the temple and in Jerusalem? They be converted Jews or still... They're not converted. They're not converted. But if Paul is, you know, out there in Asia and over there in Greece, how do the Jews in Jerusalem know what's going on? Like who this Paul guy is and what he's doing and what he's been saying. What was Paul in Jerusalem for? To report about his ministry, his travels. Right. And what festival was he there for as well? Pentecost. Now, would have the other Jews from all of these other places also gone to Jerusalem for Pentecost? Somebody who saw him in Corinth or Ephesia was there. That's right. I've seen this before. So you, we have this uh, big group of Jews coming to the holy city for one of the feast days, and people are recognizing this Paul guy. I've seen him in the churches of Asia. I recognize this guy. We beat him up and threw him out of town. But now he's back here in Jerusalem. He's actually in our temple. And I, you know, I think I saw him go into the temple with a Gentile. 
which would defile the whole temple. So these are some serious accusations against Paul, and the crowd is stirred up. Now, who was the, the Gentile that they had seen? Trophimus the Ephesian. Now, does it say that Trophimus for sure entered into the temple? I'm looking at verse 29. No, it says they supposed. They supposed. It was a false accusation. They didn't really have any witnesses for this disturbance, but yet in the frenzy of the crowd and the building of a mob, it really doesn't matter what the truth is when everybody is really angry. So the city was stirred up, and the people all ran together, and they grabbed Paul, and they dragged him out of the temple, and they shut the gates, and they wanted to kill him. What happens after that? Somehow the Roman tribune hears about it. That's right, the Romans hear about it. The police are called. And they come running in and they grab Paul. And what do they do to him? Well, he's so badly beaten up, they've got to carry him. They got to carry him, that's true. They put him in chains. Were the predictions correct? As Paul was traveling to Jerusalem, were they correct? Yes. Very early on, there is turmoil. He's arrested. He's put in chains. People are beating him up. But he knew this was coming. So in the, as the mob is beating him up, and then the Romans come and grab him and carry him away. The people are shouting away with him. They think that the Romans will um, deal with him. Let's go ahead and read the next little section there. 37 to 41 to the end of the chapter. As the, as the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. I was about to Egyptian men who recently turned up in the fall and left the 4,000 men of the attachment out into the wilderness. Paul answered, I am a Jew of the Moses and so they say this on the Lord and Mary sir. Okay, that's where we'll leave off. So Paul is put into chains dragged and carried to relative safety. The temple gates were shut, and we know that there is a, 
There is a safe place nearby the temple, adjacent to the temple, where soldiers are stationed, and they can take Paul there and seal it off and just get control of the situation. Now, for some history and context, the Roman occupation of Jerusalem up to this point uh, has been tumultuous. There are frequently uprisings, riots. The people of Jerusalem are easily whipped up into a frenzy, which might have worked in Paul's favor here because the response time of the police was pretty fast. So they, they drag Paul to the barracks. And what does Paul want to do once he gets to these barracks? He wants to address the crowd. But when he gets to the, uh, the barracks, they ask him a weird question in verse 38. Are you the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? So that's one of those uprisings that had recently happened. There had been revolutionaries and zealots that would rise up against Rome, inflict all kinds of damage, little skirmishes and conflicts all over the place. And I guess they thought that St. Paul was the Egyptian who was leading these men. But Paul replies, no, he is in fact a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia. And I don't think it's explicit there that he tells them that he is a Roman citizen, but he does use that word citizen. So I think they understand at this point that he is a Roman citizen. He speaks Greek and Hebrew. So it was, it was the good play for the Romans to stop the beating, get control of the situation. We've encountered this before where Paul was wrongly beaten by the Romans. And later on, the Roman officials found out, oh, wait a minute, this guy was a Roman citizen. Now I'm in trouble because you're not allowed to just beat Roman citizens. There's a due process that needs to happen. So Paul is quickly ushered out of the temple, away from the mob, into this barracks. Um, Josephus tells us that there was a door in the fortress, which is where the barracks would have been, that allowed for the soldiers to quickly enter the temple mount. So that quick response time is probably due to that little door that quickly would allow soldiers to enter in and out of the temple, the temple area, the areas where the Gentiles would have been allowed to be in. Paul addresses the crowd in Greek, sorry, Paul addresses the soldiers in Greek and then the crowd in Hebrew, which shows that he's an educated man and likely not just some sort of rabble who's running around with assassins trying to kill Romans in the wilderness. 
Josephus also tells us about this Egyptian Jew, the leader of the assassins that they thought Paul was. Under, their, uh, under number two, letter B, and then I. But there was an Egyptian false prophet that did the Jews more mischief than the former, for he was a cheat and pretended to be a prophet also and got together 30,000 men that were deluded by him. These he led round about from the wilderness to the mount which was called the Mount of Olives and was ready to break into Jerusalem by force from that place. And if he could but once conquer the Roman garrison and the people, he intended to domineer over them by the assistance of these guards of his Roman soldiers, while all the people assisted him in this attack upon them, insomuch that when it came to a battle, the Egyptian ran away with a few others, while the greatest part of those that were with him were either destroyed or taken alive. But the rest of the multitude were dispersed every one to their own homes, and there concealed themselves. So the Romans have good reason to show a strong hand here and intervene with the centurions and the guards very quickly. Um, an army of 30,000 angry Jerusalemites is nothing to sneeze at. All right, let's pick up with what Paul says as he addresses the Jews from the barracks in the Jews' own language of Hebrew. Let's start reading verse 20, sorry, chapter 22, 1 through 21. No, I forgot where we were at. About noon, great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. Yeah. 
very useful all that you have been assigned to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And then Brian and Elias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. Okay, so in his address to the crowd, which he makes in Hebrew, what is the, what, what's the point? What is he trying to do? Right, he's sort of setting up a defense for himself and explaining to everyone that, well now hold on, I am a good Jew. I follow the law of Moses, and what you have accused me of, I'm not guilty of by virtue of this fact that I have been... Well, what kind of appeals does he make? Um, well, he says he used to persecute the Christians himself. That's right. He was a good Jew because he persecuted the offshoot that they would have viewed Christianity as the sort of Jewish heretics that followed this guy Jesus that they didn't believe was the Messiah. What about his education? What sort of appeal does he make there? He was educated by one of the greatest of the, the, uh, the Hebrew scholars. Right, Gamaliel. He was brought up in this city, Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel in a strict manner of the law of our fathers, Notice he says, our fathers, and not just your fathers. He is showing them that he is one of them by speaking their language, even by the way he's using his words. He persecuted Christianity. Who are the witnesses of this? Who saw him doing these things? Who would have known about it? High priest and whole council of elders. The high priest and the whole council of elders, who, I imagine, are still around and would recognize Paul. Oh yeah, he used to be our greatest asset in persecuting Christians. 
and the followers of the way. He tells them even of his mission to go to Damascus to arrest the Christians there. And then he tells of his conversion experience. On the road to Damascus, he met Jesus of Nazareth. He was blinded in Damascus, Ananias, a Christian, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. He keeps making these appeals. You know, I'm, I'm not your enemy here. I am one of you, but I'm here to tell you about Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, whom you rejected and killed. So Ananias says to Paul, or then Saul, Brother Saul, receive your sight. He tells the Jews of the miracle of him losing his sight and then regaining it. And also, what does Ananias tell St. Paul to do once his sight has been restored? Right. Rise up and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. Whose name? Jesus' name. Paul's always defended himself by saying he kept the law which would have appealed to the unconverted Jews. They would only be willing to listen to someone who they thought kept the law. But, uh, right. Eventually he got to, he's got to get around to the point that nobody kept the law except Jesus. That's right. So it's tricky because they are very fervent in their beliefs. They have years of tradition and heritage. And they, they ultimately rejected Christ and had him killed. And that is a great offense to the Jews to tell them that. Um, and so oftentimes we see that they are still stubborn and stiff-necked and refuse to see Jesus as the promised one, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And despite all of these appeals to following the same laws, to being raised in the same city, a Jew of Jews, of the tribe of Benjamin, as he says in other places, they really don't want to hear it. In a sense, he went from a really good ally in the struggle against Christianity to being the, the greatest traitor. And you, if you're a Jew in Jerusalem and all of your cousins and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles are coming to town and telling you, about that guy, that guy Paul, who went to my hometown in Asia and caused all kinds of disruptions. We need to get rid of him here in Jerusalem. We don't care what he has to say. The time for that has passed. We have had it up to here with him. 
So we can look at uh, Acts chapter 22, verses 1 through 21, as sort of like a sermon. It's mostly a defense and a, a tool explaining to the Jews you know, what he's doing there, why he's doing it. He's not an enemy, but he has to tell them about this guy, Jesus, who happens to be the savior of the world. Let's read verses 22 to 29 real quick, and we'll see how the crowd reacts. stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? So St. Paul had sort of hinted at his citizenship before, but now it becomes explicit. They're getting ready to flog him. He's already in chains, which really shouldn't have happened. But once they're getting ready to uh, beat the truth out of him, he then says, now wait a minute, I'm a Roman citizen. There's a due process. And we see the response of the Jews there. And they say, we have heard enough. They listened to him up to a point. Now, be away with this such a fellow from the whole earth. He should not be allowed to live. And his sin that they are accusing him of is defiling the temple by bringing a Greek in, which alone would have been enough to kill him, but then also blasphemy, teaching against the law of Moses and the law of God, teaching against circumcision. None of these accusations were true, but that's what the mob went with. All right, we are, we are at time. Quick question? Um, I'm just wondering what the word is that was so offensive to them. In the end of verse 21, it says, Go for I will send you away to the Gentiles. And upon that word, they were listening, and that's where they took offense. The word Gentiles. I was wondering what... That word might be in Hebrew that he was speaking. 
Um, the word for Gentile would have been goyim. So maybe the offense there would have been that for the Jews, salvation is in the Jewish faith, in the law of Moses, in obeying the law of Moses, in circumcision. To suggest that Gentiles can have a part of salvation outside of the law of Moses, outside of circumcision, would have very easily sent them into an uproar. Is, is, going, uh, is that a curse word? or is it? Uh... Uh, they can use it as a slur. A slur? They, they often would. But it basically means the other nations of the earth, those who are not sons of Abraham and Jews. So that, that is probably what whipped them up into this frenzy, is not only is this Paul guy a traitor, but he's daring to suggest that non-Jews can be saved without the law of Moses. Okay, we will pick up here next week. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and power, and glory. Thank mm-hmm. you.